Thank you for listening to the Calvary Chapel Lubbock podcast with our senior pastor, Ben Martinez. Don't forget to check out our website at calvarychapellubbock.church. There you'll find a lot more about our mission to love God, love people, and live radically. Now here's Pastor Ben. As you notice, I I am not Pastor Ben. Uh, He is on vacation. He is on sabbatical. So, and as a pastor... You know, he carries a lot of responsibilities for leading people. Because ultimately, he is responsible for the people that God brings to this church. And he is responsible for the word that is being taught. He is responsible for the lives that God brings here. That's not an easy task, right? That's, That's something that he carries. Ben is just a man. But Pastor Ben had a calling on his life, and, they, and his whole family moved out here from New Mexico to start this church. And so I've known him for about, since 2004, since we moved out here. So I am very, very happy and glad that he took the time off. So he's going to be gone two weeks. I'll be teaching up here next Sunday, too. So my, my message is, also, is uh, ultimately going to be a two-part message, Okay. I try to fit it all in one, but he said, I'm not going to be here the next Sunday. So I was like, great. Now I could just take my time and move through the scriptures and not have to feel rushed. So this morning, we are going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 9. And I titled this message, The Freedom We Have in Jesus, right? We just celebrated the 4th of July last week, right? How many of you know how old the United States is? Joe? Yes. <laughs> 247 years old. You're close. Just a couple digits switched. 247. The United States is actually very young still, right? There's kingdoms. If we look back in the Bible, you look back in history, there's uh, kingdoms that were established that are no longer. God orchestrates kingdoms, governments, all this for his glory. And we as Americans think that the United States is the best country in the world, which it is, my opinion. There's no other country that we have the freedom that we have here in the U.S. of A. Because if you you are into like the... The 1040 window, which is the window in Asia where um, our brothers and sisters who are persecuted, the persecuted church, you would be grateful and thankful you're here this morning. That's the freedom that we have in Jesus. The U.S. is 247 years old, very young, and it's still growing. It's still figuring out, you know, it, it was founded by, you know, Christian principles and we've seen in our news and in the world of the here in the United States that all that slowly corroding, slowly fading away, slowly the values. That's why people from California moved to Texas. <laughs> That's why religious people in Texas moved to California so they can go and uh, give the message of Christ over there. But ultimately, God's in control of everything. So what I want to do this morning is read the scriptures and then go over it and give you a background of what we're going to be talking about. Really hone in on what it means to be free in Jesus. Because if there was one man to be in Christ, it is the Apostle Paul. As we're going to see today when we go over the scriptures. So let's go ahead and read this. Chapter 9, verse 1 says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, 
Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. So the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight. That is the word of God. So church, today we gather to celebrate the freedom we have in Jesus, right? We, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are not bound by the chains of sin and desperation anymore if you are in Christ, if you've given your life to God. Instead, we have been set free to live a life of purpose, of joy, and abundant love. The freedom we find in Jesus is not merely a physical or a worldly freedom that we have, like we have in the United States, which we live in, but a spiritual deliverance that transforms our lives. Spiritual deliverance that transforms our lives and sets us on a path of righteousness. So I want, this morning I want us to reflect upon the remarkable transformation of a man named Saul. Saul encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, as we just read. This encounter not only changed Saul's life, but also serves as a powerful reminder that no one is far from God. You know, we have people in our lives, we think, that guy, that gal will never be saved. We look at Paul's life, and we say, we can attest from the scriptures that anyone can be saved. No one's too far from God. We may think they're far from God, or they are far from God, but just like Paul, he was far from God, but yet God intervened and saved him. And we're going to explore the story in Acts chapter 9, verse 1 through 9, and uncover the profound meaning of the freedom we have in Jesus. But before we do that, I want to give you a background of where we're at, so that way you kind of know what's going on in the life of Saul at this time, right? So Acts, how many of you have read the Acts, the book of Acts? When you read that book, it's like a a movie you're watching. It is pretty awesome. Acts or Acts of the Apostles, the fifth book in the New Testament, and it was probably written by the same person who wrote Luke, which is Luke. So it's a continuation It gives a history account of the beginning of the movement of the church, which it wasn't even named the church. It was a bunch of people who got saved by God, transformed their lives. They gathered together. They were first called the way before they became the church. So the book of Acts, the chapter, the uh, the book of Acts begins with Jesus appearing to his disciples after his resurrection And he instructs them to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. And after Jesus ascends to heaven, the disciples choose to replace Judas Iscariot. Remember, Judas betrayed Jesus. He went and hung himself, so he died. So uh, Matthias was replaced. I mean, Matthias replaced Judas, and he was now one of the 12 apostles. And you hear about him here, then you don't hear about him anywhere else in scriptures. So we don't know what really happened to him. So then on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descends upon the disciples in the form of tongues of fire, right? Uh, the believers are filled, the people are filled with the Spirit, and they begin speaking in different languages known as tongues. Tongues is not a weird thing. As, you know, the church makes things weird in the Bible, even as us as believers today, it's Tongues is just different languages that God has blessed these guys with because this was during the time of Pentecost when many, many different followers of of, uh, Judaism were coming into Jerusalem specifically for this event. So many people spoke different languages, and this is what's going on. The Holy God's setting everything up, right? So Peter delivers a powerful sermon And he proclaims Jesus as the Messiah and calling for repentance and baptism. 
And so about 3,000 people were added to, the, to this new movement, the church. 3,000, can you imagine that? I mean, I've been to some big crusades like uh, Greg Laurie has, has them in Anaheim, the big Greg Laurie crusades, or the Billy Graham crusades. 3,000 people organically. Peter taught the word and he said, you guys need to repent and come to Jesus. And that's what happened. It was the power of God starting to move. So then Peter and John go to the temple and encounter a beggar who has been lame from birth. And in the name of Jesus, they heal the man, which attracts the crowd, right? So Peter, Peter seizes this opportunity, and what does he do? He preaches about Jesus. Many more people believe, and the number of believers start to grow. As you can see this, this is the beginning of Acts, the beginning, the birth of the church. And then later on, the religious leaders arrest Peter and John for preaching about who? Jesus. They arrested Peter and John for preaching about Jesus because they were just performing miracles and they were healing people. And despite the threats, Peter boldly defends their actions, stating that Jesus is the only means of salvation. And after they're released, the believers pray for boldness and the Holy Spirit fills them up. The church is growing. God is making a move. And then in chapter 5, we read about the story of uh, Ananias and Sapphira. They were part of the disciples, part of the new believers, and they sell a piece of property but lie about the proceeds they give to the apostles, right? Basically, they sold this thing and they say, God, we're going we're gonna to give this to you. They're not lying to the disciples. They're really lying to God. And guess what God does? As you read in Sunday school stories, if you ever taught them, God brings judgment on them, and they're dead. God strikes them dead right there. Can you imagine being a first century believer and witnessing this? That would like really perk you up like, man, I better not mess around, mess around with God being holy and being righteous. It put a fear in the church. So the apostles continued to perform miracles and preaching with, and the religious leaders were getting angry at them, and they arrested them again. However, an angel came this time and set them free, and they go back to and the and and they go back to teaching Jesus. This new movement growing. So, the new movement, the church, is growing, and they call themselves the Way. Hey, hey, what is this new movement? Oh. It's the way. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So we're, we're following him, the way. So the believers are growing in numbers, probably over 5,000 of them. And a dispute arises among the believers regarding the care of the widows. And you can read this in chapter 6. The apostles appoint seven men known as deacons to oversee this responsibility. So Stephen, one of the deacons, is filled with the Holy Spirit. And he performs great signs and wonders. However, he preaches about Jesus and they arrest Stephen. And then Stephen defends his faith. If you get a chance, read chapter 7. It goes over the history of Israel right up to Jesus. And Stephen defends, defends Jesus through that teaching. If you get a chance, read it. It's long, but it's worth it. So Stephen defends his faith before the Jewish council, delivering a lengthy speech recounting Israel's history and the rejection of God's messengers, including Jesus. So the council becomes enraged at Stephen. They're really angry. And what happens? Stephen gets stoned. Stephen becomes the first Christian martyr for this new movement. The church. But you know what? That thing killed them. What happened then is the church is being persecuted. 
Saul, which we're going to read about, is like the forefront guy of this persecution. So a great persecution against the church begins. And many believers scatter throughout Judea and Samaria, preaching the gospel, preaching Jesus Christ. Philip, one of the scattered disciples, performs miracles and baptizes many Samaritans, with which were Gentiles. He also encounters an Ethiopian eunuch and explains the scriptures to him. And that led him to come to know Jesus. This new movement called the Way is making waves during this time. And then we get to chapter 9. So we have the background. We know what's going on. And all the while, Saul is in the midst of this. He's in the midst of the persecution that's, that's going on, right? So let's go to verse 1 of chapter 9. It says, but Saul, let's stop there. I want to give us a really good background of who Saul is. So there's much we can learn about uh, from the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul was given the opportunity to, to do extraordinary things for the kingdom of God, as we can see. The story of Paul is a story of redemption in Jesus and a testimony that no one is beyond the saving grace of God. Not even, not even this guy. If you think you're bad, this guy was the worst. And he even says that, I'm the worst of the worst, and yet God saved me. Paul was actually born as Saul. He was born in Tarsus in Cilicia, in a province in the southeastern corner of modern-day Turkey. So he was a Benjamite. He was from the line of Benjamin, his Hebrew ancestry. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, it talks about that. So his parents were Pharisees. They were fervent Jewish nationalists who adhered strictly to the law of Moses. And Saul's parents sought to protect Saul and his siblings from contamination from the Gentiles, right? Because anything Greek would have been despised in Saul's household. So they were really zealous Jewish people uh, following the way of the Pharisee. So Saul's household, he could speak Greek. He possibly spoke Latin. And his household would have spoken in Aramaic, which is the language of this day, the common language of this day, the same language that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ spoke at this time. It was the official language of Judea. So Saul's family were Roman citizens, but viewed Jerusalem as a truly sacred and holy city. So even though they lived in Cilicia, which is modern-day Turkey, they always made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem every single year to make sure they are involved with the feast and the festivals and all that. So at around 13 years of age, Saul would have been sent to Judea to learn from a rabbi named Gamaliel, under whom Saul mastered Jewish history. So right now he's being educated. So he's sent down there. He's a young teenager, just like Daniel was a young teenager when he was taken out. And he was being indoctrinated with new doctrine, but he still kept with the Lord. And this is what's happening to Saul. At age 13, Saul was sent to Judea to learn from the rabbi. And under whom Saul mastered Jewish history, the Psalms and the works of the apostles, his education would continue for about five to six years. And Saul learned such things as dissecting the scriptures. It was during this time that he developed a question and answer style of teaching known in ancient times as diatribe, D-I-A-T-R-I-B-E, diatribe. This method of articulation helped rabbis debate the finer points of Jewish law to either defend or persecute those who broke the law. So you can see how all this background of Saul, how he was able to take it and use it as a believer to convert those who were Jews and Judaism steeped into it, into legalism, into religion, and how he had all this knowledge and education, he was able to use that to further God's kingdom, right? 
So Saul went on to become, he was probably a lawyer after all the studies, and all the signs pointed to his becoming a member of the Sanhedrin. So the Jewish, which is like the Jewish Supreme Court, like we have today. So we know the Supreme Court has so-called very smart people. Um, so Saul was part of that court, the highest court in that land in his time. So he was very well known. So Saul was very zealous for his faith. You know, in Acts uh, chapter 5, verses 27 to 42, Peter delivered his defense of the gospel and of Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin, which Paul was probably, Saul was probably there. Gamaliel was also present and delivered a message to calm the council and prevent them from stoning Peter, if you read that in chapter 5. Saul might also have been present at the trial of Stephen. He was right there. He was in the midst of what was going on in the early church. He was present for the stoning of his death, remember? He held the garments of those who did, who did the stoning. And you can see this in Acts chapter 7, verse 58. So after Stephen's death, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. This is in Acts chapter 8. Saul became determined to eradicate, to kill all these Christians. He was ruthless in his pursuit as he believed he was, caring, he was acting in the name of God. There, the will of the Lord by killing. He was doing this because he believed he was doing God's work, but he was blinded. This is exactly what Saul of Tarsus was. He was a religious zealot lost and blinded by his religion until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. That's who, we're, that's who we see today. That, that's who Saul is. He was well-educated. He was a Pharisee. He may have been on Sanhedrin. Saul spent time in Arabia, Damascus, Jerusalem, Syria, and his native Cilicia, which is Turkey. Barnabas and none of the disciples wanted to deal with him because they were scared of Saul. But Barnabas, if you read in Scripture in the book of Acts, Enlisted help from, from uh, Saul to teach those in the church in Antioch. You could read this in Acts chapter 11. So the Christians, driven out of Judea by the persecution that arose after Stephen's death, founded this church that Paul is now going to to help build up. So Saul took his first three missionary journeys, taught Saul went on missionary journeys. He was an evangelist. He spent more time in Gentile areas. Saul began to go by his Roman name, Paul. First time that happens was in Acts chapter 13, verse 9. Paul wrote many of the New Testament books. Most theologians are in agreement that he wrote Romans, which is one of my favorite books. First, second Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, first, second Thessalonians, Philemon, Ephesians, which we just covered. Colossians, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. These 13 letters or epistles make up the Pauline authorship and the primary source of his teaching, his theology, right? In the book of Acts, it gives us a historical look at Paul's life and times. The apostle Paul spent his life proclaiming the risen Jesus. The bottom line, that was his message. He didn't preach about getting right, clean yourself up. He said, come to Jesus. You're, we're not coming to religion. We're not coming to Calvary Chapel. We're not coming to whatever you think it's right. We're coming to a person. His name is Jesus. And that's Paul's message. That is his message. And that is the message that we have today. So the Apostle Paul spent his life proclaiming the risen Jesus through the Roman world, often at great persecution. I mean, this guy was beaten, shipwrecked, stoned. I know I've never experienced any of that for being a Christian, right? Paul was fully committed to God. 
In Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 to 14, Paul writes from prison. He's in prison towards the end of his life. He says, I want, he's writing to the church and he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Jesus Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Despite Paul's circumstances, he was beaten. He was, despite of all of this, despite of all the hardship and the suffering he went through, Paul knew the outcome of a life well lived for Christ, right? Because he wrote of a lot of the scriptures that we take today and we hold on to as promise. Paul really surrendered his life, fully trusting God in everything. He wrote, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain, Philippians 121. If you get a chance, underline that, because that should be a model for our lives. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Can we make the same claim as believers of today? Man, we look at Paul and we're like, oh, wow, makes me feel like this small. But you know what? He had to come the same way we all come through. Through Jesus. Jesus will set you free. I don't care what you've done, where you've been, what you think of yourself. The scriptures don't lie. God loved this world so much that he gave his one and only son, Jesus. Jesus did not come to condemn or judge this world when he came to this earth. He came to save. He came to save people. He came to save guys like Paul. Religious. Thinking they were doing the right thing. He came to save the good people of Lubbock. There are many good people in Lubbock, but there are many good lost people in Lubbock. He came to save the brokenhearted. He came to save the drug addicts. Institution, which Jesus was all around that type of people. And sometimes as believers, when we see that type of person, that type of people, and they come to our church, we're taken back. Who are people? Like, we're too good? Like, as good as you think you are? Without Jesus? You know what, you know what it says about our works without Jesus? Filthy rags. Your good is not good enough. Quit trying. No matter how hard you try, it doesn't matter to Jesus. Paul tried, right? Paul, through his ministry, Paul, before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, tried. He thought he was following God. He was doing this in the name of God. And Jesus met him on the road. That is one extraordinary Transformation. I can think about my life and how I was transformed at the age. January 2000, I always say this when I come up here because it's transformation. <laughs> January 2000, come into this church. Probably about 1,000 people, 1,000, 1,500 people in this church. God saved me. When God saves somebody, you are transformed. 
you are renewed. And some of you need to hear that this morning. Because you're walking in bitterness. You may be walking angry about something. You may be walking and you hold those sins of the heart right there. You don't let people in. Or you're sinning against God and nobody knows about it. Men, you know what I mean. Women, you know what I mean. You know what I mean. I don't have to, te- I don't have to be up here preaching to any one of us. We know where we're at with God. God can set you free this morning. He can set you free from what you're dealing with. If you have been religious in your walk, he'll set you free from that. But what do I mean religious? You're just going through the routine. You're just going through the motion. I'm showing up on Sunday, showing up on Wednesday. I put my time in. I put my money in. I serve on a ministry. You're just, we're just putting our times in. That's it. And Jesus is right there waiting. He doesn't force his, himself on us, right? He is so loving, so gentle, so patient. And as a parent, you know that, dealing with children, right? You got to be loving. You got to raise them up. Man, I was kind of hard on my kid because it was like, you have to be the well, most behaved kid. We had a reputation to hold. No, you had, it's like, especially if you're like a pastor's kid, you got to act a certain way. You got to do certain things. You got to pray. You got to do this. That's why a lot of pastor's kids leave. (laughs) Why? They're looking at us. They're going, you guys are fakers. You guys are Pharisees. You guys are posers. You tell me one thing, and yet you live a life outside of this church, outside of this building. Right? Parents, we have a responsibility. Kids, look at you. If we're hard on them and we're strict on them and not, having, and not being loving and compassionate, I mean, I'm not telling you you have to be their friend, but you have to be their parent. And bring them up in the way that they can see God in your life. I know because I've been, I was there. I was raised up in the church. My father was a deacon in the church. And when we're not at church, I did all the other stuff. So let's look at verse one. Now you know who Paul is, right? Do we know who Paul is? Do we have a background of who he is? Do we have a background of the timeline? Do we, we're, we're in the scene now. We're in the scene now. Now let's look at verse 1. I know that was a lot. Verse 1 says, But Saul still breathing threats and murders, and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest. So this verse demonstrates Saul's fierce opposition to the early Christians. It, re- it reminds us that people can be deeply entrenched in what they think is right, in hostility and opposition to God's purposes, right? We see that right here. We see in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 21, it says, whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Matthew 5.44 says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Persecute you. In verse 2, it says, verse 2 of chapter 9 says, and saw and asked him, saw asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So we see that Saul was determined to persecute the followers of Jesus. Even going to great lengths to pursue them outside of Jerusalem, right? He said, 
you guys are not going to get away. Even though if you go up to Damascus, I'm going to follow you there. Hey, uh, high priest, give me the letters. Give me the authority. I want to go over there and bring all these Christians, all these, all these people who are following this guy named Jesus, the way and bring them back here and show them the truth. Saul was determined to persecute the follower of Jesus. It reveals that his zeal and commitment to killing all the believers of the early church. In Galatians chapter 1, 13, 14, it says, For you have heard of my, this is, this is Paul here, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. That was Saul's purpose in chapter 9. He was going up there not to befriend people, but he was going up there to bring them back so they could eradicate this thing called the way. Paul says, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the trans." For the traditions of my fathers. In verse 3 it says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. This verse right here highlights the dramatic intervention of God through a supernatural encounter with Paul. It emphasizes that God can interrupt Paul's life. It can interrupt your life in unexpected and powerful ways to bring about transformation. Think about your how you got saved. And we may compare our salvation to Paul. Man, Paul was... Paul was saved, saved. Like, we could look at our lives, even if you're in here and you got saved at an early age, and and we try to compare our salvation, man... Paul was like saved, but you know what? Your salvation was extraordinary too. The reason why is because you can't save yourself. Paul couldn't save himself. Jesus had to intervene in Saul on his way to kill his people. Jesus intervened in your life to save you. Think about how, when, think about the time you got saved. What happened? When I got saved, I know God had orchestrated about three years in the making before we actually got out to California. And that was a whole story in itself because we were in Arizona. And I could think back, I look back, and I'm like, God had orchestrated our whole move for us to move out there to save me. He used a Jehovah Witness. I could have been a Jehovah Witness. I I started studying with a guy that knocked on my apartment door. And every week, man, those guys are very, they are like diligent to go after people. But you know what? Those guys are trained. But anyways, this guy came and came and came. I had questions. I was like, and always the question was about Jesus. They really don't believe Jesus is God. And I had a real big problem about that. About that. I'm like, but it says in my Bible right here in John chapter 1, verse 1. And I started, something just didn't sit right. I wasn't saved then. I'd still question things. And this is like three years in the making. Then all of a sudden, we're out in California. I'm not thinking about Jesus. I'm not thinking about salvation. I'm not thinking about church. Then a friend of mine from high school invited us to church. Yeah, I'll go and check it out just to, you know, be friendly because he invited us there. transforming power of God. It wasn't like 
extravagant like Saul's transformation, but it was transforming. Because look, look at me now. I'm here in Lubbock, Texas, teaching a Bible study. And I'm a Samoan, Polynesian descent from a little island. God moved me, moved me, and now I'm here in Texas. I'm just like, God, you are so <laughs> transforming. What about you? How did God transform you? We think of Paul's testimony, and we look, man, that's a big deal testimony. Your testimony is big deal. The same power of God, the Holy Spirit that saved Paul, is the same power that saved you and I, even in Lubbock, Texas. That same power. And sometimes we're just, we're just used to having the power of the Holy Spirit. We're just like living life and not accessing the power. That same power that saved this guy saved you. Guess what? You're here this morning here about it. And then it's going to come a time to, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about that power that you have? I just lost my place. (laughs) Verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. This verse highlights the dramatic intervention of God through a supernatural encounter, right? That saved Saul because he needed this at this time. Isaiah 60, verse 1 and 2 says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. That's you and I this morning. We can relate. We can hold on to that scripture. Just as Paul, the glory of God, came to him, the glory of God came to us when we were saved by Jesus. In verse 4, it says, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So we see the voice of Jesus addressing Saul, right? Directly reveals the personal nature of persecution against his followers. It teaches us that mistreatment of believers, when we mistreat one another, we're mistreating our Lord. When the church is being persecuted, Jesus is being persecuted. Jesus takes it personal. He tells Saul, why are you persecuting me, Saul? Why? In Matthew 25, verse 40, it says, And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You know, in the church, we have a tendency of like, they say, shooting our own wounded. (laughs) But Jesus is telling each one of us, Hey, those are your brothers and sisters. The minute you try to, you know, I don't know, whatever bad thing you want to come to other believers, especially, you're doing it to me. Stop. Jesus is telling us, that's one of mine. What are you doing? He's telling Paul, hey, those people you're going to kill, they belong to me. Verse 5, it says, and he said, who are you, Lord? Saul is saying, who are you? Are you Lord? 
And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Direct revelation from Jesus himself. Saul's question and Jesus' response demonstrates the, the revelation of Jesus as the one whom Saul was persecuting. It reveals the truth of Jesus' identity and authority. In John chapter 8, verse 12, it says, Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Paul realized that right now. He really knows who Jesus is. Remember, he was raised up in the scriptures. He knows the scriptures. And right away, when Jesus reveals himself to I bet you all those scriptures that he learned, all those things, all the five books, all the memorization, everything that he studied pointed right at Jesus. And Saul was probably like, oh, man, did I mess up and miss the point? But Jesus didn't kill him, right? Man, if if I was God and... And some, somebody was going after and killing my people. I say, oh, you're done. But Jesus was kind. In verse 6 it says, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Jesus instructs Saul to proceed to Damascus where further instructions will be given. This verse emphasizes the importance of obedience following God's guidance, even when it requires stepping into the, into the unknown. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, six, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Ain't that a comforting scripture? It's like God walks with us, just like he did with, with uh, Saul right here. Verse 7 says, The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, Speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. You know what? Saul's companions, the companions of Saul's, witnessed the extraordinary encounter, but are unable to fully comprehend. They didn't understand what was going on or perceive the voice of Jesus. It just goes to show you the power of God. Jesus took the time out to come down and see this guy because he was going to use this guy to pen many letters of the New Testament which we have a lot of our theology from today. Matthew thirteen sixteen says, But blessed are your eyes, for if they see, and your ears, for they hear. So F- Paul right here finally knows what's going on. He finally understands that Jesus is the one he should have been following instead of his own religious zealot. He was blinded, but now Jesus shows him the way. Saw, verse 8, it says, Saul arose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Saul's physical blindness symbolizes his spiritual blindness, right? Just like us, before encountering Jesus, it demonstrates the need, perspective, and dependence on others in times when we're vulnerable. That's why God created the church. People that we can walk alongside with. You can't do this thing on your own. You think you can. You really can. God has a family. Plug into that family. We all need encouragement. We all need somebody to say, you know what? Life is tough. Life is hard. But God walks with us. It's for us, not against us. We all need that. Coming to a close, and it's 11.14. That was my goal. All right. What can we take away from this lesson? Number one, recognize the transforming power of Christ's encounter, right? We saw that in Scripture. 
Just as Saul encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, we too can experience the transforming power of encountering Jesus in our lives. We must open our hearts to his presence, seeking a personal relationship with him. Through prayer, studying the scriptures, and spending time in his presence, we can invite Jesus to transform us from the inside out. Let us surrender our lives to him and allow his love and grace to bring about lasting change. Not only for those who don't know God, but especially for us as believers. Let's recognize that. Number two, reassess the zeal and commitments we have in our lives. Consider or pay attention to what you're passionate about. Because not all the passions that we have are directed towards God. Just like Saul. Like Saul, we may have zeal and passion for our faith, but it is important to reassess, reevaluate our motives, and to ensure they align with the heart of God. Here's some questions. Are we zealous for the right things? What are you passionate about this morning? What are you zealous about this morning? We saw what Saul was zealous about, and it wasn't of God. Are we motivated by love, compassion, and the desire to honor God this morning? Are we? Are you, church, are you? Am I? Is that where our motivation comes from, or is it something else? We should regularly examine our hearts, seeking alignment with the truth found only in Scripture. Let us pursue a Christ-centered zeal that reflects his love, mercy, and justice, right? Like, we all have passions. We have different passions. I have a passion to try to play the guitar, you know, passion to... Whatever passions, some of them are not so good. (laughs) Whatever passion you have this morning, are they directed towards God or are they taking you away from God? If they're taking you away from God, find new passions. You know what we should have a passion about? Loving one another. Right? That should be a passion of the church. Paul writes in the letters, he says, I want you guys, the church, to abound in love more and more and more towards yourself. He didn't say that. He says towards one another. That's a passion we need to pursue, right? The third thing I want you to take away is is embrace divine intervention. God can intervene in our lives in unexpected ways, just like what we saw. Redirecting our paths and bringing about transformation. We should be open to his leading and guidance, even if it takes us out of our comfort zones. Let us trust in God's sovereignty and be willing to follow his divine interventions, knowing that his plans are always for our good. His plans is always for our good. Fourth thing, surrender and obey God's will. We have a hard time doing that as a church. We like the benefits that God has for us, but we don't want to surrender and be obedient to the scriptures. Right? Surrender and obey God's will. Saul's response to Jesus' instructions was immediate obedience. In our lives, we should cultivate a spirit of surrender and obedience to God's will. This means aligning our desires, decisions, and actions with his word. As we surrender our our, uh, will to his, we can experience the abundant life and purpose he has for us. Church, let us seek his guidance and submit to his plans, trusting that his ways are higher than our ways. The fifth thing we need to focus on is dependence on God in times when we're vulnerable, right? We need to depend on God first before you go to somebody else, before you try to figure out the thing for yourself, why don't we go and pray, God, I'm in this situation. God, my health is this. God, instead of saying, hey, uh, trying to figure it out for yourself, I do that. And I know you do that because I do it. When Saul was blind and unable to see, he depended on others to lead him. That's what the church is here for, depend on one another. In the same way, in our moments that were vulnerable in uncertainty, we need to rely on God and seek support from, from our Christian community. We must be humble enough to admit our weaknesses. 
We must seek his guidance from those who can help us navigate challenging situations. Let us remember that we are not meant to journey alone, but to rely on God and the church for support and encouragement. Quit walking, quit doing this Christian thing on your own. You can't. The only, why, the only reason why you think you can is because you're prideful. We're prideful that we think we can handle it, this life. Quit doing that. You need the church. Yes, you need the church. Who is the church? Jesus. And Jesus has a family. Look all around. This is your family. And many other buildings in this city, in this world with different languages, different nationalities. Do you realize that's your family? By applying these lessons, we can deepen our relationship with Jesus, align our zeal and passions with his purpose, right? We can trust in his divine interventions, surrender to his will, and rely on him in times of when we're vulnerable, when we're hurting. We can rely on God and his church. Church, may we be transformed by his grace becoming vessels of his love and instruments of his kingdom in the world today. Just like Paul, Saul became Paul, he was transformed. He's doing that the same for us. The question is, have you experienced the freedom we have in the Lord Jesus? Saul, who became Paul, did, and and I invite you to this freedom. If you don't know Jesus this morning, what are you waiting for? If you've been here A few times, what are you waiting for? The Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit is telling me to tell you, come. Come with all your baggage. Come with all your hurts. Come with all your disappointments. Come with all the pain that you've experienced. Quit trying to fix yourself up because you can't. You can. Superficial is a band-aid. But ultimately, there's one person. We don't come to a religion, and I always like this. We don't come to a system, but to a religion, we come to Jesus. And I pray that you know him this morning. If you don't, I invite you to know him. As the worship team comes up, I'm going to pray for us. And if you don't know him this morning, I invite you to come to true freedom. His name is Jesus. Amen? Father God, I thank you so much for a transformed life. God, how you transformed Saul, as we read in the scriptures, God, he thought he was doing your will, but yet he was blinded. God, we were blinded before we came, before you found us. I'm so grateful to be in this church with brothers and sisters. I'm so grateful that we belong to a family. I'm so grateful for you, God. Thank you so much for your son, Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice. Thank you so much for the gift of your Holy Spirit. You seal us until the day of redemption. God, that brings great hope. Great encouragement, no matter what we're going through. God, we thank you so much for your word, for it is living, it's active, it's alive, and it speaks to us. The good stuff, the bad stuff, God, it speaks to us. Thank you for that, God. God, thank you for your church. Thank you for Paul's life. Thank you that you were able to take him transform him, and use him in a mighty way to impact your kingdom, God. Thank you for our lives. Thank you for our transformation. Thank you, God, that you're not done with us yet. Thank you, God, that you're not done with this world. That the work of the Holy Spirit is still going throughout this world, saving people. We're so grateful that we are saved. If you're here this morning, you don't know God, you want to know what true freedom is, I invite you 
to come to Jesus. As Pastor Ben says, we, we don't come to join this church or to join an organization. We come to join the family of God. If you don't know him this morning, if you would just raise your hand, I would love to pray for you and acknowledge God before you. If you're here this morning, I pray that you were encouraged and that you know God and that from the scriptures that we would live our lives differently. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. We'd love to hear from you and see you in person at the church. You can find our contact information, location, and even give a donation at calvarychapellubbock.church. We'll see you next time on the podcast. Until then, may God bless you and your family.